Emily, it's Kristen Rieschen calling from the Law School Show. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> We're doing well. I think our lives are slightly less chaotic than yours wow. at the moment, anyway. Yeah, it's not very often that I get a, uh, I need this today and you didn't see this coming, but <laughs> today was one of those days. By Law Students. For past, present, and future law students. Bringing you information to help your career. This is The Law School Show. Good afternoon, my good friend, Rishi. How are you, bro? I'm doing excellent, man. We are 48 hours away from writing our first bar exam. How are you feeling, Chris? Generally, I feel good, but the past three weeks have been a challenge. Um, I think the biggest thing was trying to be confident or trying to find confidence. And my lack thereof was a stress causer. Um, With law school exams, I had written enough of them to know exactly how much work to put in in order to get the grade I was looking for. But with the bar, never having gone through it before and having to prep in new ways, there wasn't that familiarity and it was a little bit more difficult to find confidence. It came down to not comparing myself to other people, uh, really just insulating myself and having faith in my own methods that they would produce the results. So just putting in the effort day to day. Rish, how about you, man? How are you feeling? I'm feeling much better than I, if you were to ask me that question two to three days ago. Having gone through the material once, I feel uh, things are falling into place now as I'm reviewing, and also I'm getting used to using the index, which I found is a critical thing to do for the bar exams because all of the answers that you would be looking for in the exam are definitely in the material. It's a matter of finding that. So uh, now I'm building that confidence that you were speaking about a bit, uh, but we won't know what to expect until we write our first exam And the next time that you guys hear from us for our next episode, we'll be able to tell you how the first exam went and what changes we might have made to the preparation for our second exam. But enough of the bar talk, Chris. Who do we have on the show today? Emily Nicholas, legal counsel at a very unique role at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. She's got a cool job. She definitely has a very cool job. And the interview was really exciting as well. One of the things that really stood out to me was how she took her interest in sports and knew the kind of role that she wanted and was able to make that happen and the entire process of getting getting and finding a job at Maple Leaf Sport Entertainment. What else did we talk about, Chris? It wasn't a straight straight shot from her from law school right to Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. So she has a great experience going from private practice into uh, an in-house role and she gives very specific advice to law students when it comes to fulfilling your career trajectories uh, whether it be an interest in in-house or interest in private practice small firm or large firm so that's uh, that's some valuable valuable bits right there exactly and she also talks about her experience with maple leaf sport entertainment and what her job from a day-to-day basis involves As always, subscribe on iTunes. It's the best way to consume long-form podcast conversations. Check us out at thelawschoolshow.com. And you can also email us any questions, suggestions that you might have at info at thelawschoolshow.com. 
let us know what you want to know and we will go out there and find it and bring you the information to forward your career. Here's our interview with Miss Emily Nicholas. Good afternoon, everyone. I've got Emily on the line and I've got Mr. Rishi Deer here to my left. How's everybody doing? I'll take that silence. <laughs> I'll take that silence to mean that everyone's doing great. Uh, Emily, how are you specifically? I'm good, thank you. Perfect. All right, so tell us about yourself without talking about law. I am originally from Ottawa. I grew up uh, with just me and my mom. She is also in the legal profession. Um, so I guess I'm kind of an only child, although I do have some siblings. Um, I, what else can I tell you? I grew up playing a lot of sports, a lot of hockey, a lot of soccer. Played hockey in university at Cornell in the Queens. Uh, wow. I don't know. I've, what else can I tell you? I've had 23 roommates in my life. I <laughs> you're taking track. <laughs> Are you still in touch with all of them? Uh, yeah, almost. Just about. Not quite, but pretty close. That's awesome. Uh, what else can I tell you? I don't know. I went to Queens for law school. Okay. Uh, I lived in Ireland for a bit. I don't know. I guess that's sort of me in a nutshell. I'm like a tomboy at heart wrapped in a girl's body. <laughs> <laughs> So before we kind of go into your background, do you want to just tell us a bit about what MLSC does? Uh, and for our listeners, just so they know that that is the place where you're currently working. Yeah, so MLSC stands for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. Uh, we own and operate the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Toronto Raptors, the Toronto FC, the Toronto Marlies, and we sort of own, manage um, the Air Canada Centre, BMO Field, and Rico Coliseum. Wow. Yeah. And what and how does your role fit into MLSC? So I'm legal counsel. Uh, we have a, you know, we try to do as much work as we can in house here. Although we do use external counsel for some things like litigation and real estate and some sort of more specialized practices. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a team here of four lawyers and two clerks and an assistant. So I am the most junior of our legal team in terms of lawyers. Okay. And, uh, yeah, two of those, well, one of the lawyers and one of the clerks sit on the executive with with the important guys, with the Tim Laywickies and the, the size of the world. So <laughs> so the day-to-day legal team looks more like three lawyers, but, yeah, so I'm just one of those, I guess. And what kind of stuff are you guys working on on a day-to-day basis? So for me, day-to-day, I mean, I think this has been my experience working in-house Sort of here, and I also worked at Parmalat prior to coming here. Um, it's sort of different every day. It's hard to put things sort of in a in a bucket, although we do sort of try to do that here. Um, so, like my own practice, personally, I manage all of our contests. Uh, so I do all the rules and regulations for those. We have a lot of partners here who like to run contests where they prize out tickets or trips or stuff like that that involve our team. So. I do all of that. I do sort of film shoots where people want to come into our buildings to film like movies or TV shows or commercials and things like that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of, I mean, by and large, it's contracts. Um, but those are the sort of sort of cooler, you know, see them in the real world type of activities. I also do like our privacy and our anti-spam. Uh, you know, I manage those policies and sort of teach people at the company about them as they need to know them. 
um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of that sort of stuff. A lot of we have a lot of trademarks and intellectual properties that we manage here. Obviously, a lot of our teams have like logos and slogans and that kind of thing. So I also manage our IP portfolio with our outside counsel. So yeah, that's kind of my. Project. That's really cool. Uh, in terms of contests, uh, what are some issues that you see actually arise from uh, the contests that you guys run uh, where like the litigation aspect might come in a bit more? Yeah, so I haven't dealt with any actual contest litigation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, not to toot my own horn, but that shouldn't happen too often if you draft the same. That's the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sometimes, I mean, you can come across issues, I guess, it would mostly come across with, like, prize activation, right? So if something happened on a trip or at a game where, mm -hmm. I don't know, like, flights were missed or there was an injury or something like that, I guess that's where it, it could sort of come up. Um, but for the most part, when I'm sort of drafting these rules, I mean, we have relatively standard language. It's mostly with our partners. We have to focus the, the leagues, like the NHL, the NBA, uh, we have specific marketing territories that we're allowed to market in. Yeah. So, for example, like the Leafs, it's 50 miles from the city of Toronto. So often some of our partners want to run contests nationally, and we actually just can't do that. So that's sort of one of the things we're always looking for is to make sure that people are sort of respecting the rules that are told down to us by the leagues. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. That's really interesting. So you're not allowed to run contests related to, say, Leafs or Toronto Raptors outside of the immediate territory. Right. I mean, if you do, you have to oh. you have to get legal approval. So it's just a more complicated process, which is totally fine. And like we're willing to help our partners with that. But you know, for the most part, where someone is just trying to do like a short contest for a week, where you're going to give away a pair of tickets, mm -hmm. it's sort of easier to just comply with the territory and market it. Realistically, unless they're going to offer to bring people outside of the territory into the city and pay for that. Most yeah. people who want a pair of tickets. Like the cost of getting here would be more than the value itself. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It makes sense to be within the territory, anyways, just because those are the people who will actually be able to use the prize. So, how much interaction do you actually have with uh, the leagues and the associations? I mean, it's not it's not too frequent for me. It's just been a little bit. Like this year, probably one of the coolest projects that I've worked on so far was uh, we helped with the NHL face-off event. Well, like the the first game of the year, they broadcast it from Dundas Square in Toronto, and the tragedy hit played, and there were activations all up and down Young Street. So I helped with that, and that mm. was working with the NHL's legal counsel directly a lot. So it does happen, but for the most part, there are certain contacts sort of within the company who will do the sort of direct contact with the leagues. What's the hardest thing about your job? Uh, probably volume. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in this company. A lot of, a, a lot of teams, a lot of, a lot of partners, a lot of sponsors, a lot of things to think about. It's just, and you know, we're a relatively small team, uh, so it's really just, just volume. But even that is, it's manageable. And honestly, like the the best, probably the best part about working here is the legal team for me. It's just really good environment. Like people are really helpful. So it's easy mm -hmm. if you're starting to feel overwhelmed, just be like, okay, guys, <laughs> new help yeah. here. Did you, uh, did you know anything about, like, contest privacy and all this movie stuff that you're doing before you came to MLSC, or uh, is that something that you kind of had to learn right on the job? I So uh, after, before MLSC, I worked at Parmalat Canada, 
Yeah. Uh, Lock Canada is like a dairy company. They make like uh, Latantia and Balderson and cheese strings and all that fun <laughs> stuff. Uh, and that was an actually a, that was a two-person legal team. Okay. So I learned a lot of this stuff there because they did a lot of similar. I mean, the nature of their work, the subject matter is different, but the sort of type of work, the contract review, the contest, the managing the IP portfolio, like all of that was very similar. Yeah. So I had done quite a bit of that before I got here. Um, okay. But before I got there to Parmalat, I'd probably done just about none. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, I'd say, like, again, one of the highlights for me probably about working in a small team is that it's sort of to everyone's advantage mm-hmm. in the legal team. Um, if there's an, an agreement or, you know, a contract that you're going to come across a lot to sort of take the time out to – like 30 minutes, an hour, or whatever it is, um, to teach you about those things. Yeah. Would you, would you say it's a hindrance for somebody who doesn't have this kind of experience beforehand and wants a role that's similar to yours? Or uh, do you think that has no, not a, it doesn't play a huge role? So sorry, can you just repeat that? I'm not going to lie to you. My, my, I have a glass door and my boss is making funny faces at me and I just... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no. For lunch, and they're trying to distract me, and it's, it works. <laughs> I'm back. I got it. No, no worries at all. I was just asking. Do you think it's a hindrance for somebody who wants a similar ro- role as yours, uh, for not to have the experience that you did in regards to the contest, privacy, and move all of that stuff beforehand? Um. No, I think. I mean, a lot for me, at least in my experience so far. There's a lot of self-teaching, like, after you leave law school. A lot of times, you know, in law firms or in-house, you'll get instructions or you'll get a type of agreement that, like, you've just never seen before. Yeah. And generally, like, especially, you know, I found both at Parmalat and here, like, asking for help is, that's okay, because you're mm-hmm. new and you need to learn things. And, I mean, I find you can... So I guess where I was going with it before is, you know, it's it's to everyone's advantage, for example, with contests, if I'm going to be doing contests regularly for someone to take 30 minutes out of their day, their non-billable day, (laughs) to to teach me once, and then I know how to do it. And moving forward, like now I'm independent. I don't need to go ask anyone for help with contests, right? So, I mean, as long as you're entering a sort of team where they're willing to take that time and they're not looking for the experience sort of ahead of the game coming in, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty easy to catch yourself up to speed. Okay. Do, you know, like like private practice, do you also have your billable and non-billable inside? Uh, do, you, do you track that regularly? No. In MLSC? No? No. We have no, no billable targets here. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned volume was a challenge. So one thing we like to talk to our guests about is how they handle volume. So for example, what's your motivation? What are your efficiencies? Before we get to that, um, do you have a specific morning routine that you go through every day that sets you up for work? A morning routine? Yeah. Oh man. I want to tell you that like I wake up every morning and I go to the gym and then I'm ready for the day (laughs) because I keep telling myself that I'm going to do that. But I really love sleep. <laughs> so Me too. I've been feeling at that for like at least two years now, I'll say. Um, so my morning routine usually involves ignoring my alarm for like at least thirty minutes. <laughs> do, you, do you sleep for Do you sleep for eight hours every night? 
like ideally? No. In my no, fantasy no. world, I would. Again, these are all the good habits that I should develop, but I'm not. But I'm working okay. on it. Good for you. And okay, so your your morning routine is that there really is no routine. Yeah. And that works for you. All right, perfect. Yeah, I so, mean, like, I would say, like, I snooze, snooze a few times, get ready, go to work. We usually, you know, chit-chat with my coworkers about what you did last night, go down yeah. to grab a coffee, and get Change after it. it. Cool. Um, when you're, like, before you get to the office, are you thinking about work things right away? Like, is your BlackBerry in your hand within, you know, within that first snooze, or are you sort of just trying to – separate yourself from work oh yeah not anymore <laughs> not the, <laughs> i would say that i the, the wake up and look at my blackberry right away is probably a practice that i used to have in my former private practice life yeah um, but not so much anymore um i think the difference like working in a business is just i mean obviously private practice has like a million perks and i have good things to say about private practice too but um the pace of a business is just a little bit different like, t- mm-hmm. today is a rare exception where I got, like, a I need this by end of day today type of assignment. But generally speaking, like, the business is not necessarily moving at a lightning pace because most larger-scale pro- projects, you know, they require cross-functional review. Like, different departments are involved. It's not just decisions that are being made overnight. Thought goes into it. Finance has to think about it. Marketing has to think about it. Legal has to review it. You know, like, it's mm-hmm. it's a little bit mo- it's a little bit easier to sort of, predict your time mm-hmm. so this sort of checking your blackberry constantly for the surprise assignment is it's not really as common would you, would you say that was one of uh, the bigger reasons why you switched from private practice to uh, going in-house uh yeah i would say the sort of predictability of my time is something that i definitely enjoy uh mm-hmm. i mean the hours here, you know, they're nice. <laughs> I'm happy. Um, yeah. But, you know, for all of the hours that you're here, you you still work really hard. So, um, and uh, one of the sort of more more interesting habits to think about when I moved from private practice to in-house counsel was there is always work that can keep you here. So it's sort yeah. of, you know, I could I could still work my private practice hours if I really wanted to. I think. So it's just about managing your workflow, managing people's expectations, communicating, sort of keeping realistic turnaround times, and it's just a little bit more control over my own practice, I think is what I like about it a lot. Let, let's hold on to that, that workflow idea for a sec. So how exactly do you manage workflow, and how do you reduce decision fatigue when you have multiple things that need to be um, delivered in a short timeline? Um. I mean, a lot of it is, is it's just about communication. Okay. You just have to, this is a very difficult lesson to learn <laughs> for me because mm-hmm. I'm definitely a, a yes person, and that's probably also a leftover habit from her practice. It's yeah. just that to just tell people, like realistically, rather, I would never lead with, no, I can't do this for you, but I would give back to someone, this is what I've got on my plate right now. So it's always trying to get an, a, a realistic assessment from the person you're getting work from about the timeline that they're working with. And then, you know, sometimes things will, I might come to work and have a list of four things I want to finish today. 
And realistically, I might realize halfway through the day that I'm not going to get to the fourth item on the list. And yeah. that's probably okay unless I know for a fact that it's urgent with that person. So I might check in with them and say, hey, look, I plan on getting to this due today, but X, Y, and Z came up. Is it okay if I get it to you tomorrow? Um, almost exclusively, you're going to hear a yes on that here. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's really just about communication, like communicating with the people you're getting work from. And I'm also a compulsive list maker. So, <laughs> so I think I'm managing my workflow by constantly updating my list and sort of trying to prioritize what needs to get out on a more urgent basis than what doesn't. How do you actually build your list? Like, are, are we talking sticky notes all over the place? Or do you, do you have some kind of software system that you use to, uh, to manage that? Oh no, like I have a pad of paper next to my computer. <laughs> that is sophisticated. <laughs> Very sophisticated. But personal satisfaction of like scratching a pen against the paper and crossing things out is still doing it for me. So Yeah. I really like check marks. There's something about making like several check marks in a day that's just like wow, I really Oh no, I want to scratch it out like aggressively. <laughs> um, are you I have sticky notes on my computer, and I, I guess I also, I'm a, I don't know if this is a useful thing for other people, but I'm like a compulsive sorter of my emails. Okay. So, so my inbox currently only has in it the stuff that I'm working on. Okay. But I don't keep everything in my inbox. I sort things into folders, so when they're done, like, they're out of here. So mm -hmm. when I open up my inbox, the only things I see in there are the things that I need to work on. Yeah, so it's not like an overwhelming feeling when you just open it and you have about a thousand emails sitting there. Yeah, and it's easy for me sometimes at the end of the day to just check my email inbox against my list to make sure that I haven't let anything slip through the cracks. Mm, that's that's a nice little tip. I like that. So w what are your subfolders like to do next week, can, can wait for, you know, indefinitely? <laughs> get, to it, get, get to it when you have time. <laughs> no, they're actually like sorted by sort of type of work, like confidentiality agreements, content, okay. finance, licensing, mm -hmm. litigation, that kind of thing. So I really like when they, when it goes into a folder, it's it's pretty much done. Okay. Nice. Otherwise, I'll keep it active in my inbox. Are there any things that you do outside of work to make sure that you stay motivated on a daily basis? I mean, I, like, honestly, this is going to sound cheesy and that, like, somebody paid me to say this, but I think, like, my, big, my biggest motivation is that I just really like this job a lot. Um, that's so, crucial. That, that, that's yeah. huge. That's so legitimate. Like, that is not cheesy. Um, I, yeah. No, I'm like a – I played a lot of sports growing up, and this is – you know, I tell people it's no big secret, like, even my friends from law school. Like, it's pretty much my dream job. So – you know, if that can't keep you motivated, then you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you started on the wrong path years ago if, uh, if that's the situation. So maybe that's a, a nice place to, to go here in the conversation. Um, so when did you first identify your interest in, uh, like, corporate law, sports law, um, entertainment? And, um, yeah, so where was it born? You said, yeah. you're a to you said you're a tomboy at heart, so maybe it, maybe it was born at the same time you were. Yeah, I think it probably was a little bit. Um, I mean, when I went, okay, when I went to law school, I wasn't even really sure I wanted to be a lawyer. So I just, oh really? Yeah, it was like I just felt so. I, I, to be honest, always thought I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a psychiatrist, and I stayed one summer for organic chemistry and quickly realized why that's a weed out course. Um, 
So then I was like, okay, I have a psych degree, and what am I going to do with this? But yeah. I just know, and when you're in your early to mid-20s, what you do is you run away to Europe. So um, I applied to teacher's college, PhDs, law schools, and I just ran away. So when law school acceptances started coming back in, I just thought, like, I just honestly thought it was good education, versatile. I wasn't like, I've watched every episode of Law & Order since I was 12, and I must be a lawyer. Um, <laughs> well, your your mom, you said, is in the legal profession, so that must have had some influence. She is, and I'm like, of course that had some sort of influence. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, going into law school, I, I genuinely thought I was going to go into criminal or family law. Oh, yeah, probably just because there was like a human element. I sort of felt like it was somehow distantly related to my psych degree. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, but, you know, I didn't know any better at the time. Um, and, yeah, like I sports, I mean, sports law was always my sort of fantasy pipe dream in my mind. But I knew, obviously, it's, it's sports entertainment. It's a quite a small bar. There are only so many opportunities. Um and, like, I went to Queens, there was only one entertainment law course. There wasn't really mm-hmm. that much opportunity to sort of learn what it was about. There was always something that I was like, wouldn't that be cool if, you know, I've been playing and watching sports since I could breathe, and I yeah. have a law degree, and if I could make those two things go together, that would be awesome. But I didn't really know how realistic that was sort of going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, like, I had the interest sort of immediately upon going to law school, but... It was sort of always a, a back burner plan, and in the meantime, I just figured I would get some other transferable skills so that if and when the opportunity presented itself, I'd be ready. Does that make okay. Sense? Yeah. yeah. So, so it, your first job, I guess, for a legal job was uh, at Blake's during uh, through the summer recruitment, I'm guessing, right? Yes. And uh, did you end up doing any of the sports-related, entertainment-related work, or you just kind of kept yourself open when you went there to try a variety of uh, different types? Uh, so they don't have a really big practice there. Okay. Um, so, no, I didn't do anything related to that while I was there. Um, I, I sort of – my articling class was, at the time, the biggest class that they'd had. So – it was it was sort of difficult, I would say, to like angle for particular groups or even get rotations in particular groups. Mm-hmm. My sort of philosophy was just to go to the groups that I was assigned to and put my head down and try to do a good job, and wherever I ended up is where I ended up. Yeah. Uh, nice approach. Yeah. Although, to be honest, like in retrospect, I'm not sure if I would handle it that way if I went back again. But um, like I think I might have been a little bit more not aggressive, but I ended up in financial services um, at the end of articling as an associate, and I just sort of didn't really see myself becoming a financial services lawyer. Like, when I went to that group, I worked really hard, and the people were nice, and it's great at the end of articling to be to be offered a position with the firm. It's, like, a really exciting time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of, you know, knowing, honestly, in the back of my mind that I had this sort of sports and entertainment long-term goal, I just didn't really see the skills transferring very well. Yeah. So if I could go back and do it again, I would probably try harder to get a more general corporate practice. Okay. So you stayed at um, Blake's for three years. Is that inclusive of your summer student and articling student, or was that all as an associate? No, no, that's inclusive. I was only there as an associate for a year. Okay. And um, what was going through your mind at the time that you left Blake's and joined the Parmalat team? 
So between Blake's and Parmalat, uh, I had like a, a gap. Yeah. So that's actually how I ended up getting this job. Um, I remember when I was at Blake's, everybody always used to talk about like how important networking was. And when you're in a big firm, you sort of get it, but you don't really get it because you sort of don't necessarily, depending, in, interact with the clients kind of as much the junior level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you sort of get that networking is important, but you're mostly, I found, networking like within your own firm. Because right. it's a big firm, you're sort of networking to try to get interesting work and just meet people and that kind of thing. So between Blake's and Parmalat, I decided I have this time. I want to be in sports and entertainment. Everybody keeps telling me how important networking is, so I'm going to... I'm going to give that a whirl. So between Blake's and Parmalat, I would say that I probably met with about 50 people. I don't know. It's a ballpark guess, but in the sports and entertainment industry, just trying to figure out what do you do? (laughs) Like, what do you do? Like, do I just think I like this because I like those things in my personal life? Like, what's it like to actually work in this field? And I sort of try to turn every meeting into another meeting. Um, okay. And that's how I sort of met a whole bunch of people, and I had um, a really good friend from undergrad who worked here at MLSE, and I said, hey, can you get me a, a meeting with anyone in the department? I'm just curious to meet them and ask them about their career path, and and uh, I ended up meeting with the person who's now the general counsel here, who wasn't the general counsel at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met with him, and he said, oh, you should meet with a woman who also was was here but has since left MLSC because she had worked in a whole bunch of other entertainment areas prior to coming to MLSC. So I met with both of them and it was just great and we got along and, you know, the cool thing about networking is that people are really nice and it's really awesome to, like, learn about their background and how they got to where they are. But the one thing that they sort of can't do is make up a job on the spot because they like you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is too bad. Um, <laughs> so then I ended up going to Parmalat, but, like, I really liked and, you know, I followed up with all the people that I had met with just to tell them where I had landed and whatnot. And then genuinely out of the blue, almost two years later, I got an email from my now boss saying, we're making changes at MLSC and reaching out to people who've expressed interest in the past and do you want to have coffee with me? Wow. That must so, have been a nice email. So that was um, a very exciting email. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's really important for people to realize that um, – the benefit of networking often manifests itself far removed from the actual networking act. Exactly. And so you, you end up sort of planting the seeds that you can you can leave for a while and allow to grow, and then all of a sudden you, you've got something of, of real value at a time when you almost didn't expect it. Um, for sure. I mean, so. one of the things that I found kind of frustrating when I was doing all that networking was that when I would ask people, everybody's so modest, and I would say, you know, how did you get to where you were? Yeah. Where you were? And they would all say luck. And I was like, well, luck is the one thing I can't control. So that answer makes me really <laughs> angry. Um, but then I realized, you know, after I heard from my boss two years later that, like, I am lucky that they decided to make change to the department. And uh, But I sort of created my own luck by getting myself in front of them. And yeah. you know what I mean? So yeah, luck, luck favors the prepared, for sure. And you did that. Yeah, like, I feel lucky to, to be here, and I really like my job, but I guess, like, I did sort of create my own luck a little bit by putting myself out there. Definitely. Were there, you, you mentioned that 
uh, after you network, after you met all these people, you kind of let them know where you had landed. Were there any other things that you did to kind of stay in touch and make sure that you were top of mind for these uh, individuals that you had met? I didn't, and I wish that I, I probably should have. Like, it's one of the things that I would definitely recommend, but I think part of me was like, okay, I'm at Parmalat. This is a two-person legal team, and I'm learning. Like, the learning curve was crazy because it was all of a sudden I went from a sort of sub-sub-specialty at Blake's in, like, the regulatory side of the financial services department to being a generalist. Like, I was Mm -hmm. getting contracts and contests and trademarks and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. So I was sort of taking in so much information that I think I sort of made that my priority over sort of keeping up with my network. But Mm -hmm. I I do think that there is, like, huge value in doing that. I would recommend that as highly as possible. Do you have any tips on that? Sorry, you know, a year later to do the check-in and say, how are you? Or do you want to go for coffee again? Or a couple months later, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah it's def- I say it's definitely worth it. All right. So we'll keep you on the line for five more minutes. Um, I want to ask you about your law school experience. So sure. yeah, with the benefit of hindsight, what's one thing you would have done differently um, at Queens? Oh, interesting. I, pro- I probably can't say enough good things about my law school experience, so <laughs> it can be hard for me to think of a – because I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go in in terms of, like, my more immediate career, I probably took – I didn't really focus my studies that much. Like, I sort of took – and I don't, I don't know if I even think this is a negative, to be honest, because I still think you should do this. I sort of took what I thought was interesting and not necessarily what was practical, Okay. So, I mean, I I can't really say that I regret that, but I could see where it would help in the sort of early years at a law firm with having taken sort of more of the practical courses than just the interest courses. Mm-hmm. I, I think you should have a good mix of both because I still think you should enjoy law school because law school is really fun in my opinion. Uh, yeah. But yeah, maybe that, or I guess maybe the only other thing is I didn't take a lot of the courses that ended up on the bar exam. So I did okay. find that a little bit stressful, maybe, that when I was reading some of the bar ad materials, I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> did you? That's an interesting point, because I've had several professors say to me explicitly, don't take courses because you think it will be on the bar exam. Mm-hmm. Um, did professors tell you that same thing? I mean, I didn't do it, right? So yeah. I, and I still passed. So can I really say that you should do it? No. Yes. But... It might have reduced my stress a little bit, but yeah. at the same time, I got through it, and everybody does. So, you know, I would say yeah. about law school, the most, import- the most important thing I would say, and I just did it like a Queen's Law panel for people who are five years out just speaking to students like a- about a month ago. Oh, nice. I would not, I cannot stress enough how much it's important to, like, be a member of your law school. Like, mm-hmm. be part of the community and know the people in your law school because I find in terms of the networking and the long term, like those people bring opportunities your way. Like, my friend from law school is the reason why I got the job at Parmalat. And I know lots of other people who have gotten jobs through other of their colleagues at law school. So I would say maintaining your, like, immediate class network is really important, too, because those are the people who, like, they really know you and they're, they get it and they are totally willing, I found, to like, I don't know if this is a Queen's thing or not, but to stick their necks out for you, which is pretty cool, yeah. I think. Yeah. 
Well, it says, it says a lot about you in terms of what you bring to relationships too, right? Um, so what's what's a what's a goal you're still striving for in terms of your career development? It's just more experience. Yeah. More knowledge, more experience. You know, it's building that sort of personal confidence. Like when you're, and I still am, the most junior in a department. You know, every sort of time I realize that I just did another big project or another big agreement, like on my own, and I didn't have to sort of check in with anybody to see if I was doing something right. Like, it's a really it's a really good feeling, and it takes a while. You know, it's, it's one of the things that I found really interesting about being in, in a law firm and whatnot is that, or being out of law school, is that it takes, it takes a few years before you realize that you get it, like you know what you're doing. Yeah. And it's not scary anymore. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's okay for it to be scary at the beginning because you, there's a lot to learn. Um, so I think for me, it's just continuing to sort of build that confidence and be comfortable. That's probably what I'm working on the most. For, for somebody who's going through law school and kind of trying to determine whether they want to go in the private practice side, go the in-house route, or go to like a smaller, uh, you know, smaller firm, what are some like advice you can give them if they're trying to balance all of that and determining where their future might lie? I will say at least for the in-house route, it's it's less common to sort of get into it at an earlier stage. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people do tend to go the private practice route first, and a lot of companies, and this is not like a universal truth, but, you know, a lot of companies look to that experience that you have coming in. They like to know that you've sort of built good habits and learned good skills somewhere so that when you come into a company, you can sort of hit the ground running at least a little bit. But yeah. you, you do have that ability to ask your team for help and to learn. But at the same time, when it is a high-volume practice, you have to be able to sort of handle some things on your own. So to, the, to that extent, like I think the in-house route, a lot of people sort of probably do private practice for I would say somewhere between three and five years before they make the jump. Okay. Um, in terms of a big versus small practice, I honestly think it's probably personal preference or like the type of law that you want to do. I think you should, you know, to the extent that you can find firms that are have a good reputation in an area, if you know the area of law that you're into, it's easier to sort of target your, your applications to places that are experts in that stuff, right? So, um, but at the same time, like for example, friends who are, my friends who are litigators and who've gone to smaller shops are really like going to court a lot and are on their feet a lot. So I think that they're getting like invaluable experience in a smaller shop that they might not necessarily have gotten in a bigger shop. Right. I think like the area of law that you're into can sort of dictate whether you want, okay, sorry, but they're making faces at me again. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great place to work, not going to lie. <laughs> Now they're doing the, like, you know how you fake walk down the, a staircase and get smaller and smaller as you walk? Yeah. Yeah, that's what's happening now. <laughs> I feel like you should take some pictures, and we can probably put them on our website with the recording. <laughs> they probably have no idea what phone call I'm on either, so they're going to feel like <laughs> it after. Um, that's great. Uh, anyways, so I think, you know what, it's hard to say because I didn't know what I wanted to do other than the long-term sports school, and I think that you can find your way just as much by knowing 
like when you're going in and tailoring your applications and your work that way as by not knowing and sort of figuring it out by process of elimination. Like I know at Blake's, our student, the head of the student committee told me I was a litigator after my interview. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's nice. And then I went to litigation that summer because she probably forced me to, <laughs> but without <laughs> feeling it. And I didn't like it. Yeah. And I was like, oh, all right, well, I don't want to do this, so what else is there? And then I tried another thing until finally I found something that I did like. So I think that's okay, too. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mm -hmm. think if you know what you want, you should go after it. But if you don't know what you want, you shouldn't panic because there's probably time to figure it out. Like, I'm already on my third job, but I'm only a fifth year of call. And a lot yeah. of my colleagues have done the same thing, including jumping from one area of law to the next. Nice. I think that's a beautiful spot to end it. So. Hopefully you can aggressively scratch off interview with law school show from your to-do list. If you like what you just heard and you would like to hear more, subscribe to the law school show on iTunes or anywhere else podcasts are available. If you would like to interact with